Welcome to this episode of TBR, a series of the EBPL Footnotes podcast. TBR stands for To Be Read, that pile of books sitting on your nightstand, bookshelf, or table just waiting to be read. This is the podcast for people who embody the phrase, so many books, so little time, and for those who want to ignite a love for reading. Every month we'll be highlighting a few of the new items coming to the EVPL collection, from books to movies to our library of things. Hi, I'm your host, Jamie, and with me today is... Aaron Deckard. Hello, I am back. He is back because... We've been here before, but it's been a while, so it was time for a revisit. Absolutely. So we are, like all the other ones, we're going to break down our topics for the new books coming out this month and the hottest month so far, June. Yeah, so far. (laughs) So far. All right. So what was your first pick? All right. So I tried to get a nice clean mix of both nonfiction and fiction because I feel like I do tend to lean more towards nonfiction. So my first choice is a book called The Con Queen of Hollywood, The Hunt for an Evil Genius by Scott C. Johnson. Uh, This little blurb here says the spellbinding tale of an epic international uh, manhunt for a psychopathic con artists who exploited the dreams of creators to steal dozens of identities and millions of dollars. Basically, this person, uh, especially during COVID times, would pretend to be working for all of these like big Hollywood execs and reach out to people and tell them, we need your help doing this or that. Uh-huh. A big thing they would do would be um, going out and surveying surveying uh, shooting locations. And they would basically say, we'll pay you back, but go pay for this thing first. Right. And then they would, uh, you know, through all this, like um, set up, uh, I forgot what it's called. Basically they would um, con people into giving them like their, their banking information. Oh no. And then they would, of course take that. And um, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the small synopsis, um, I read of it is uh, fascinating and there is like, you do find out who it is at the end, of course, Okay, but you, uh, you know, it's quite the journey it looks like to get to that. Well, I imagine that the, uh, what was the full title again? Uh, the con queen of Hollywood the hunt for an evil genius. Okay. All right. So, or is it King? That's a oh, no. question. <laughs> if it's a mystery, we're going to have to figure that out. That sounds, that sounds fascinating. Um, those great those books are great to read because then you can go, ooh, I'm gonna watch out for that. You know, it's like we always want to think we're savvy. Right. We, do. we think we're savvy. Uh and I can see someone really milking that situation when everything was in lockdown and everybody's really trying to come together and these people are going, I'm pretty savvy, but this is a worthy cause. And then they give out banking information. And I'm like, you think you won't do it. And then somebody who just knows those right things to do and say will convince even really smart people. We are all capable of falling victim to social yeah. engineering. It's yeah. just, uh, it's it, if they get the right data, the perfect storm of emotions right. and appeal. Um, but man, it's just, it's very funny like that we, um, especially during COVID times, like you have people whose first reaction to something that was unprecedented right. is how can I make money off of this i know and then but then i'm like but then are we 
are we bad people also for wanting to like devour these stories and like seek out mm. these stories? Cause it's like, it's so interesting, but also they're bad people. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, in fact, this is going to lead right into my next book because I both am, uh, I don't know what the right word is. I also enjoy the current fascination with true crime but I also wondered the same kind of things. What is it about me that <laughs> enjoys this genre? Because I will listen to certain podcasts. And and the first book that I chose is is a new true crime. And it's called A Thread of Violence by Mark O'Connell. And it's actually set back in the um, mid-1980s. Uh, and there was a well-known, and it's set in Ireland as well. And so there was a well-known um, heir and socialite his name was Malcolm MacArthur, and he'd always lived a life of wealth and leisure and did the parties and salons and did all these things and had inherited a great deal of the money that led to his wealth. But then around 1982, he'd burned through almost all of it. And so he was getting kind of desperate about how to maintain the lifestyle that had, I mean, not that I justify anything, but it's like if you don't know how to do anything, I can understand the desperation because it's like I don't even know where to start getting a job, you know, when you've never really had to do anything but live whatever you wanted, whatever way you wanted to. And so here he is and running out of money. So smart guy, he decides to rob a bank. Okay. <laughs> I feel like there are a couple more options he could have explored before that. I feel like that. Yeah. that he could have thought that through a little bit better. I also feel that someone who was already well-known probably shouldn't have made that choice. I mean, just speaking purely practically, <laughs> putting aside the moral aspect of it, if you already are kind of known, how well do you think you're going to get away with that, you know? Right. And so, but anyway, as things do, things went very badly. Things went awry. People were killed. And so suddenly there's this massive manhunt trying to track him down. And it basically led to, according to the book, and of course I have not read this yet, but um, it said it led to one of the most infamous political scandals in modern Irish history and helped to bring down a government. Whoa. That's that's how you like, that's a stinger right there. That's where the hook really draws in because I'm like, Okay, it just says a government in the blurb, you know, without having dug any deeper because, of course, the book has not. It's We've ordered it. It's getting ready to hit our shelves, but I haven't even gotten my hands on it. So I don't know which government, when they just say a government, and how in the world did one heir trying to rob a bank help? You know, I'm sure it wasn't a single-handed event, but still, how did that affect the downfall of a government somehow. Yeah, I, it's like the uh, the domino meme where it's like right. the small domino is a rich guy who drank all of his money, and the big domino is like the the uh, the uh, takedown of a government. Yeah, and you're like, how did this get there? And so that's exactly that right there is what would make me want to read this book because I'm like, how did this get to this point? So anyway, so that title again, just to say it one more time: a thread of violence. By Mark O'Connell. I'm going to have to check that out. All right. So for my next one, uh, I am going to stick to the nonfiction. So this one is, oh gosh, I'm picking the long titles. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek. How 17 shows transformed television. 
Uh, this is the untold stories of seven revolutionary teen shows, uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, My So-Called Life, Dawson's Creek, Freaks and Geeks, The O.C., Friday Night Lights, and Glee that shaped the course of modern television and our pop cultural landscape forever. So you can kind of really tell. It's just, it's taken these, what they consider to be these benchmarks throughout um pop culture mm-hmm. through the lens of TV, specifically, you know, television aimed at young adults and just kind of explores how these shows helped shift things, not only in how we consumed TV, but also uh, behind the scenes, how, you know, uh, the structure of studios change. Um, you know, the, the one thing that they kind of talk about a little bit, like the CW is pretty much defunct now, but be- the CW, which was formerly known as WB, mm-hmm. um, definitely more uh, heavily advertised for like young adults and teens. Um, but, you know, we all we all watch it, too. It's just older people get a kick out of like, you know, the supernatural and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, but the fascinating thing about that is if you look at like, um, you know, the, the ratings, like their ratings would always be much, much lower than other networks, but yeah, they were still, um, you know, able to make a lot of money off of advertising because advertisers were paying more for that, um, for the, the, um, for that advertising space because, um, people in that demographic, um, so you showed spend more money. So, um, but yeah, it's it, it's a fascinating. It looks to be a fascinating like deep dive into just like you know the behind the scenes stuff and how this stuff kind of really shapes and leads to where we are currently mm-hmm. in the landscape. Yeah, it's amazing how I mean it is. I guess it's always been true. It's just the medium that's changed. It's like throughout history, you know, art or music or poetry shaped the mindset. It was both an expression of the things that people were going through, but also it influenced how people perceived the things they were going through. And I mean, throughout history, that's always been true. And this is just one of the current mediums that's continuing to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it makes me think the title makes me think of um, a limited series on Netflix called the movies that made us. Oh, yeah. And I really enjoy that. And it just talks about those iconic movies that were released over the decades and and how that was different and how it changed perceptions and, you know, overcoming certain things to in order to get that movie made. And uh, it's been a while since I watched it, but I really enjoy that kind of thing because it's not just nostalgic. Oh, I remember when that movie came out. But it's also how it shaped and influenced things in ways that we didn't anticipate. Oh, definitely. And well, and the, plus one of the more interesting things that caught my eye in the first place is in that list of shows, they have included um, Freaks and Geeks, which unlike all the other shows, that show only not only had like one season, but I think it was like 13 episodes. Okay. And it's just kind of been um, very funny how they like you'll see people who were involved in that show mm-hmm. like for example Seth Rogen that was like where he started mm-hmm. um and like people in front of the camera and behind the camera like who are super influential now mm-hmm. and that sh- this book c- c- kind of goes into that a little yeah. bit too so I i'm interested i find it interesting that some of the most famous and long long lasting in the sense of we still think about these shows were also some of the shortest lived ones. Like I think as a, I can't help it because it's where I come from the original Star Trek series. Oh yeah. Only three seasons long, but it's still that thing that we go 
and it and it spawned even though it didn't last that long it spawned so many other series and movies and then i also think of firefly did yeah. that make was that only two seasons long I'm no sure. that was even it wasn't even a full season at that time because okay. that was 13 episodes oh, okay too. and so and yet you know it even gets made reference of in pop culture itself because if you've ever watched big bang theory you know there's this conversation and sheldon is saying well this night is always going to be set aside for Firefly, you know, and he's, and he makes some comment that says, well, cause it's going to just always it's be going <laughs> because it's such a great show. And yet, you know, it didn't last and that people still refer to it. You know, it's funny. And there's some, we won't get into it cause we don't have time, but right. <laughs> there's some interesting like stories behind what, like basically it was one of those shows that seemed doomed to fail before it even took off. Mm-hmm. Because due to behind the scenes stuff, but anyways, yeah, um, you know, I, I love it's just part of like that TV history. I like to explore. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, what's your next book? So, my next up is also a nonfiction, and it's kind of in the wheelhouse of true crime, except it's more like um, if you like the forensic science shows like CSI and those kind of things. This is what we're talking about. It's called "What the Dead Know." Learning About Life as a New York City Death Investigator by Barbara Butcher. And yes, her last name really was Butcher. In the blurb, it said she's heard all the jokes. (laughs) I mean, yeah. But she was the second, only the second woman ever in the role of a death investigator in New York City. And the first one that lasted more than three months. So so she would get called to a scene. I wonder why. I know. (laughs) Uh, she would get called to a scene. She would be one of the death investigators called to a scene to determine what had happened, if foul play was involved or not involved, and, you know, the, the chalk outline, that was her. And so it just, it's her years in that work, the different things that she saw and learned and experienced. And one of the little snippets that was uh, written was, like, for example, there was one time by the sheer luck, she happened to be wearing a cast on her arm that day when she was at the scene and there was a booby trap at the scene. And except for the cast on her arm, she would have been very injured or at least. And I don't even know the story, but that was in the blurb. So I'm like, okay, well I have to at least know what happened there. Yeah. So how did just serendipitously you being wearing a cast protect you at a death scene where there was a booby trap, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but I really do like the firsthand accounts of things like that. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's gruesome and stuff. But it's it's fascinating how we've learned to break those things down and learn from them and uh, advance science and also advance, you know, how we find answers in the light of really tragic events. Yeah, and just the, uh, I mean, it's, it's I do like it when show, like fiction uh, or shows like that explore this back in like older times mm-hmm. tries to like take it a uh, more realistic grounded perspective mm-hmm. on it. Um, so I, it's it's funny you mentioned death investigator because my my uh, dad is the coroner of our home county, and oh, so really? I'm actually I lived up I I grew up around this stuff. He uh, he was basically he's been the coroner since I was. Um, in fifth grade and to kind of give you uh, an idea of how long that is, I am currently 37 years young. <laughs> so he's been doing it for uh, almost 30 years. Wow. Wow. And um, I'll tell you a quick 
funny yeah, story. Yeah, uh, do that. Because, you know, there's nothing funnier than death. Um, <laughs> but he... Uh, That's how we face it. We had... Uh, he received a call one time. Um, the uh, He had... Uh, there was a body he took over to the hospital for their part of it, for the processing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they called him while he was on vacation with um, his family. And they were panicked because uh, the guy had a pacemaker. Okay. And it kept firing off because oh, no. it didn't know he, 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 he didn't need it anymore. Right. It's just a machine and it just kept, uh, it kept you know, trying he'd to... just be laying there and then just kind of like, oh. and they were like, uh, it was, I think it was just a bunch of interns and they didn't know what to do. And yeah. they're like, should we like incinerate the body? Like, Cause I guess they were thinking like the closest playbook they had was like how to deal with zombies. And so they were like, we'll just burn the body. And my dad was quickly, well, no, don't do it. First of all, because we don't have the, the permission of the family right, right. to cremate. Just, just Secondly, that. that thing will explode, oh, that which is why you have to take it bad. out before you cremate. <laughs> um, so yeah, they nothing, checked first. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of real world macabre. Um, I well, when you told me that your dad had been the coroner, I thought, oh, I bet you've heard so many stories. Yeah, and I've been to like I actually went on calls with him mostly, oh, wow. mostly because like he would be picking me up from practice and he'd be like, oh, someone died. No one's at home. I'm gonna have to take my like ten oh, year old kid wow. to the scene of a crime. <laughs> well, I grew up in a small, small, small community, so it was kind of like no one bad an eye at or anything like it yeah i got some interesting stories i can only guess so this will be a longer conversation at another time yes <laughs> but um so what was the name of the book again it was called what the dead know learning about life as a new york city death investigator by barbara butcher okay that's another one i got put on my to be read list yes. haha yeah, said the thing did it. we did it all right so what's up next for you all right so we're gonna switch over to fiction This book is called The Road to Roswell, a delightful novel about alien invasions, conspiracies, and incredibly silly things people are willing to believe, some of which may actually be true, from the Nebula and Hugo, award-winning author of Blackout and All Clear. Um, I'll read this uh, summary. When level-headed Francie uh, arrives in Roswell, New Mexico for her college roommate's UFO-themed wedding, complete with a true believer bridegroom, she can't help but roll her eyes at all the wide-eyed talk of aliens, which obviously don't exist. Right. Imagine her surprise then when she is abducted by one. Um, and there's like <laughs> more of a... a little shocking, yes. And the summary, I, I was just kind of looking at, I'm like, ah, oh, this is a quintessential summer read. Like, mm-hmm. just kind of like, you know, like a funny, goofy... Uh, premise just you know like a very like breezy read it sounds like where you're just kind of like i'm just going to enjoy myself i'm not going to learn anything new about myself in these Mm. words i I would hope not that would be weird i have found titles like that to be a little misleading there's a cup there's one author in particular uh that i'm thinking of that he will the title and also the premise of the book will sound almost amusing and then you get into the book and you're like, oh my gosh, no, this is bad. This, is, I mean, not it's not bad as in a bad book, but it's a bad as in this is not funny at all. <laughs> if I wake my wife up like two o'clock in the morning, rocking in a field position going, we're all the aliens actually, <laughs> then. Have her text me. You know, yeah. We'll talk you down. We'll talk you down. All right. So uh, the next book 
on my list is also fiction. It's called The Glass Chateau by Stephen P. Kiernan. And so the setting is, it's France. It's right after, like right after the end of World War II. And so, of course, the initial jubilation at the defeat of the Nazis is jubilation. Everybody's excited. They're in the streets and, and really happy. But then very quickly, they look around and all the roads have been destroyed. All their bridges have been destroyed. Their railways have been destroyed. Their hospitals, their schools, their churches destroyed. And they are now having to face the long road of rebuilding all over again. Plus, on top of this, they have each one of them pretty much experienced really traumatic things. The main character is Asher, and he has lost his entire family. Uh, he was a member of the resistance in situations where he had to kill. And so he has, he is now, you know, it's like you've got this goal, this main goal, this collective. We just got to fight and resist until we bring it into this war. And now that that has achieved, it's like they're facing all the things that they went through. Not that they didn't in the moment, but really when you're still in the throes of that, it's just all about survival and what do we do next. Yeah. And now that that is moved, they're all facing their own personal traumas. They are having to start scratch, rebuilding this very badly damaged nation. And also you have these uni- different groups that had all united toward this common goal. You know, you have the, the Federalists and you had the Communists and you had just different varieties of resistance fighters that had this common goal. Now the common goal is achieved and they're back to remembering that they think very differently about how things should move forward. And so there's just a lot of how do we move forward in this. And so he has, as I said, faced trauma. And so he goes to a place called, I'm trying to remember. Oh, here it is. Chateau Guérin. I don't speak French. I just probably I mean, said that it sounds very good badly. To me. I probably pulled off Chateau, but the rest of it, I don't know. Chateau, Chateau Guérin. Um, anyway, so he lands there just looking for a hot meal. And... It's a place where a lot of people uh, who are similar to him, facing their traumas, trying to figure out how to move forward, have landed. Um, It's run by a Catholic um, organization, I believe. And so as part of rebuilding France, that particular area, they make glass. And they're starting to collect sand and make glass to make windows to replace um, some of the windows in the bombed-out cathedrals of France. Okay. But in that, it's kind of both a safe place and a place where different people who have experienced these challenges are sometimes butting heads and sometimes supporting each other and, and kind of processing together both peacefully and not so peacefully the things that they have gone through as they are working to make these... Um, windows for the churches as they rebuild. And so it sounds like a place of healing, but also processing. He's keeping the secret that he's Jewish from the fa- from this Catholic organization because after all that they've gone through, he doesn't know how they'll respond to his ethnicity and his religion, you know? And so, you know, I, I am a fan of historical novels. I kind of go back and forth. I'll read modern settings or unreal settings or historical settings. And, but I haven't read a good historical book in a while, and I could see this being 
a really good way of processing what it must have been like in the after. Yeah, I like the concept of like, you know, having that um, having that opposition that you can have a united front against. Mm -hmm. But once you all once your common enemy is Mm -hmm. off the table, then how do you proceed? Exactly. Exactly. And I can imagine as they're rebuilding, you know, this group is going to say we should do this. And the other group's going to go, no, 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 we should do this. And that's where, (laughs) oh, everybody needs to rebuild, but how do we rebuild and still do it together? I know that's not the case, but it'd be funny if one of the groups was like, no windows. (laughs) (laughs) At least he landed on something that is important. (laughs) What was your next choice? So my next choice, uh, funny enough, even though I'm not really, um, I don't really like read a lot of historical fiction, is a historical fiction novel, Lady Tan Circle of Women by Lisa C. From a young age, Yuxin learns about women's illnesses, many of which relate to childbearing alongside a young midwife in training, uh, Mei Ying. The two girls find fast friendship and a mutual purpose, despite the prohibition that a doctor should never touch blood while a midwife comes in frequent contact with it, and they vow to be forever friends, sharing with each other's joys and struggles. Uh, that is until Yaxin is sent into an arranged marriage. Her mother-in-law forbids her from seeing Mei Ying and from helping the women and girls in the household. How might the power of friendship support or complicate these efforts? Lady Tan's Circle Women is a captivating story of women helping other women. It is also a triumphant reimagining of the life of a woman who was remarkable in the Ming dynasty and would be considered remarkable today. So, um, by the way, this takes place in 15th century China. Okay. If, I was um, I was listening to the names and I was waiting for that. But when you said Ming Dynasty, I'm like, okay, I know where we mm-hmm. are. <laughs> Which I'm not. That's one of those things where I'm just like, oh, this is an excuse for me to look up Chinese history because I do not know much about it. And any I've learned from school probably got washed away. So, uh, yeah, I just found like I just found that story fascinating. And the fact is, it is a historical fiction novel, but it is kind of based on a true person. And of course, you know, they took liberties to right. tell like a cohe- coherent story, narrative right. so exactly. yeah and so I mean, you can there's probably not a lot of written records and it's more like just kind of building of what would it have been like yeah kind of story in, that incorporates the historical mindset and and lives and experiences of the time yeah it could just be like for like a hundred years like for several centuries the story was like can you believe there was a women doctor i know in the 1500s that is a little startling mm-hmm. But I, you know, I feel like there's always been those, even back in the you know, found ways, I'm going to be a doctor. I don't care what the social constructs of today are. And um, it in a variety of ways. It's like there was at least one Civil War doctor that was a woman dressed as a man. I think it had to do with their sexuality, but also they really wanted to get in there and help and be a doctor. And I think it was a long time. I'm going to have to do some digging. I feel like I've read this. I feel I see an old black and white photo of this person posing, but I'm I'm not remembering the name. So, you no, know, there was, you know, if this happened, like, and someone like was like, oh, that's a woman. She's like, I don't, I don't like it when women wear pants. That's right, right? don't keep your hands off of me. I don't care if half <laughs> of my body is missing from that cannonball. Yeah. Right. I don't feel like they would have said that. Yeah. I think you're accurate. <laughs> All right, so the next book in my choice is uh, the third book in a series called the, the series is called the Jane Austen Murder Mystery Series. And so oh, yeah. it's a retelling yeah. of, the, of the different Jane Austen tales, but of course, 
again, a retelling with a murder mystery involved. And so the first book, I'm going to go ahead and read the other two books in this series, at least the titles. The first book is called Pride and Premeditation. Uh, the second book is called <laughs> Sense and Second Degree Murder. That's an incredible title. I'm hooked. And the, Continue. the third book, the one today, and, it, and I didn't mention it's by Tears of Price, is Manslaughter Park. Okay. So for those who know the different <laughs> titles of the Jane Austen uh, books, that's, of course, Mansfield Park. Yes. And so so what has happened is Fanny Price is staying with this family. Uh, most members of the family aren't thrilled with having this person who's kind of in a poor situation thrust upon them. But she is distantly related. If I, I've actually not read Mansfield Park. I've read several of other Jane Austens, but I haven't made it to this one yet. It's on the list. Uh, but she is kind of the poor relation that is staying with the family. Many members of the family aren't thrilled about this, but the father of the family is quite supportive and caring, at least in this story. But a tragic accident happens in which he dies. Or is it an accident? <laughs> and that's the question that Fanny Price has to find out. She has to dig into family secrets. There's the stories of some sort of blackmailing. And she has to start moving in the circles of high society to find out what really happened. And because she is the poor relation and because her basically her only ally has just died, doing all this digging is definitely putting her in a precarious position. Interesting. That's wow. Yeah, I, I I should check that out. Yeah, I think I think it sounds fun. Well, I do like literary spinoffs as long as they're well done. I'm sure yeah. I've said that before. The story is a good story. You know exactly. And so when they do spinoffs of say a Sherlock Holmes kind of tale or or Jane Austen or others, I it catches my attention. Yeah, I just like the idea of like, uh, yeah, we're going to really keep focusing on like this person navigating the class system, mm -hmm. but also there's a body. Yeah, exactly. That'll get a lot of people's attention. Yeah. That's like, it's just kind of like, it's, it sounds like, you know, like a disgruntled English teacher. It's like, I can't get these kids to read Jane Austen. So I'm going to like, someone's going to die. Like <laughs> that, that'll hold their attention. I mean, I still feel like it's a, well, maybe I shouldn't disparage other titles, but Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, yeah. I, you know, you got to go, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I also like it when people have fun with their literature. That's important, too. Like, you know, it's like that, and there was the Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter. Like, clearly yes. just meant to entertain. Exactly. Like, that's it. Exactly. All right, um, you have another book. I have one more book, and we're going back to nonfiction. And also, I am bending the rules, because this book came out um, the last week of May. Okay. Um, but I've been, I started reading this. Um, now, uh, I cannot say the name of this book. <laughs> Why can you not say the name of the book? So this is what it's called. Okay. So, uh, so the subtitle is the naked truth about hot dogs. I'm just gonna, you know, like play it safe and not say the main title of it. Um, but just so you know, it is a euphemism. And as soon as you read it, you'll be like, Oh yeah, no, can't. If there could be kids listening, yeah. um, but the the subtitle is "The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs" by Jamie Loftus. Who, if that sounds familiar, she has had several like miniseries podcasts okay. where she's 
done deep dives into different subjects. She had one where she explored the origins and the cultural impact of Lolita. Um, that was very good. Um, there was one where she uh, was it the Mensa Society. You know what I'm talking? Yeah, she actually was. Uh, she she joined. She was invited, and so she had a podcast about like her year in the Mensa Society and how kind of insane the whole experience was. Oh, yeah. And then I she would also love to hear that one. Yeah, and then she also had one called Ghost Church, which was about uh, exploring like just kind of the the, the southern Midwestern like gothic side of religion mm-hmm. um but uh yeah she's kind of borderline a uh a little bit of a gonzo journalist where she uh she throws herself into the story and in a this Nelly case type of person. yeah so she for this book she she traveled the the country for a year going to like all the major hot dog places okay and it's both like uh you know it's a little bit of history but that's not the point of it it's more of like a cultural uh, analysis of through the lens of like this process highly um influx like nitrate meat that you know oh, we all get uh-huh. enough and uh, the the kicking off point for her was uh, she talks in her um uh, introduction is hot dog sales during covid went up i forgot it was like 300% wow yeah huh i'm pondering that Although there were a lot of things about that time that didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm like, why the run on toilet paper? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you thought you were going to be holed up, I mean, we didn't know in the initial days of lockup just how long this was going to be or how long we would have access to supplies. So I guess if you're coming at it from that perspective, it makes sense. Well, I think also we talked about this earlier, like people who see these these tragedies and automatically see opportunity. True. And so you had um, a lot of people kind of taking advantage of that and hoarding all of the toilet paper. And then right. when, the, you know, the supply chain, man, it, it got, it, it came back strong. And yeah. then those people had like 5,000 rolls of toilet <laughs> paper and tried to return it, which I just found very funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it, it's a fun read so far. She's got like a very quirky tone about her writing. Um, and kind of like, you know, the, the steps for her, she's more focused like on this information feeding these jokes of hers. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting read so far. It sounds a little bit like an excuse to just go on a really long road trip and try out all the hot dogs. <laughs> right. Right. And she, yeah. And she's just very like bare bones about everything. Like nothing, nothing left unturned, no stone left unturned. Oh, and oh. yeah. Thorough. Very thorough, yes. All right, so my last one is another fiction. It's called Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Banyan Moon is a crumbling manor in the swamplands of coastal Florida. And it is the home of the matriarch of this Vietnamese family. Uh, Her name was Min. And this covers several decades. It starts in 1960s in Vietnam, but it moves to America. And, you know, the the description doesn't say how that happens. One presumes that perhaps uh, the grandmother in the story uh, married a serviceman or something. But in any case, she winds up in America. And so there's three generations that are discussed here. There's the grandmother. And she's fiercely independent and has recently passed away. 
And then there's the daughter and the granddaughter. The granddaughter's grown. She had a life that was all together, but now she's facing some really real challenges. Um, And apparently, from what I've read, they all had very complicated relationships. The mother and daughters, in, in both cases, the grandmother and mother and then the mother and the daughter, had really challenging relationships. And so they're both grieving. The granddaughter and the daughter of the woman who just passed are both grieving. But the mother's feeling both sad and a little jealous because the granddaughter and the grandmother had a pretty good relationship. And so she's sad for the loss of mother, but also kind of envious that her daughter had the kind of relationship that she herself did not. And in her will, uh, she has left both of them Banyan Moon, this crumbling old manor. And so they're like, oh, what are we going to do with this? So, but in the process of going back to this place and, and going through everything, they make discoveries that help them understand each of their situations a little more thoroughly, the insights and the motivations that each of them face that probably not explains exactly, but helps you understand why conflict came between them. So it's like it's a pretty, it's more focused on like a character study than. I think so. And I have always, in fact, I meant to introduce it this way. I always love the kind, I'm sure I've said this before because I can't help repeat myself sometimes, but I loved movies like Moonlighting Mm -hmm. and uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding and things because it gives me, even though it's probably superficial, a glimpse into the inner workings of another culture. And so because these are all uh, a Vietnamese family, I'm really curious about what that'll look like as you get to know uh, their practices, their traditions, especially the grandmother who originally grew up in Vietnam and then moved to America uh, compared to the two women that grew up in America and never probably experienced that rural Vietnamese life. And so, or I mean, I'm assuming she, it was rural. Maybe she lived in one of the major cities of Vietnam, but it would still have been a ex- completely different experience for all of them. And so I really like the way that comes together. So it just gives me a new way of looking at another part of the world and how the people both have differences from us, but also uh, those common grounds because conflict between relatives (laughs) seems to be existent no matter what culture you're a part of. And it's just one of those things where like it's, you highlight, uh, usually like what makes our generations different, but then you you dig a little deeper and you're just like, oh, there's a lot more common ground here than I thought. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a pop quiz, and I know that this is a dangerous question because as much as we love to read, reading time is a different story. So are you currently reading anything? Uh, I am reading that book I told you about that of which I cannot name, and um, I haven't started, but I I picked up the first book in Brandon Sunderson's um, epic series. I could not remember what it's called, and mostly because I'm always trying to. Um, I really want to dive deeper into sci-fi and fantasy. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't do much of that reading um, back in the day, so I'm trying to play catch up with it, okay. which is dumb. I'll never. 
ever catch up. There's some fantasy series I keep meaning to start, and I have not yet. Um, but uh, his name kind of uh, crawled um, in front of me on my news drop because he <laughs> he had that article that dropped about him. Um, I think it was like a couple months ago, okay. where the um, the interviewer infamously was like. Brandon sucks. Like it just basically oh, his tone. Very hostile. Well, very hostile towards this guy. Everyone was just like, why? Oh, yeah. yeah. What's yeah. going on? Like it just, it came across as him being very like jealous and petty of uh, Brandon because he's, he, I guess it opens up with, um, none of you ever heard of Brandon Sanderson before. And he's probably richer than all of you combined or something like <laughs> wow. that. Yeah. That's not um, aggressive just, at all. Yeah, just like just talking about like he's a super successful like fantasy writer. He's the one who uh, picked up um, the Wheel of Time series. I was after, just going to say I was I was associating his name with that. Yeah, because after Robert Jordan, right? Um, that sounds right. Yeah, um, I passed away before he could finish the series, so he he picked up and I don't know if it's still ongoing, but he's kind of he 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 took his outlines and has continued the story um from then so um so that was his like closest claim to fame in the mainstream um but then since then he's now he's known as the like you know like the semi-nice guy who just for some reason this guy wanted to just take a crap all over like (laughs) verbally i feel like there's certain people that if everybody loves somebody they're just gonna do the polar opposite for whatever reason Mm-hmm. You know, and and I don't know. Yeah, I think there's well, and it seems like in our culture and the the clicks, the, the articles that kind of have like a negative tint to it get to the most clicks. Oh. I'll never forget this uh, Vice article, which you know, uh, R.I.P. Vice uh, shutting down because paper media and internet media cannot last anymore. Right. Um, they uh, there was this guy who wrote this article, which is just an insane topic for an article where he basically just uh, he spent like three years harassing the uh, the planters nuts uh, Twitter account. Okay, and like well, and, and not just hobby, not not just harassing them, but like telling them like uh, uh, the uh, um, the Mister Nut uh, mascot, like telling them like I'm going to hit Mister Nut with my car, like just very. <laughs> And then he's just like, and then his article was just like, here's what it was like for me to threaten an imaginary character for two and a half years. I'm like, this is insane. Why, why did he get paid to do this? Yeah. Yeah. That is. But I clicked on it and that was like, that was the the whole point of it. Yeah. Exactly. So I just finished reading station 11. Oh, I love that book. Yes. Uh, I, haven't read, I haven't watched the show yet. I was wanting to read that I first. I always try to read the book first. And um, and actually, it's the book that we're reading this month for book club. Okay. And so, you know, I have so many books that I mean to get to. And so one of my ways of getting to it is I go, well, this is going to be one of the books for the book club. So I just finished Station Eleven. I really liked it. I found it interesting the way... They chose the characters, so to speak. Yeah. And how they made this one character who died at the very beginning of the book kind of the central axis of all the other characters. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it was fascinating. I'm still kind of processing what I want to say about it, but I really enjoyed it very much. And I'm looking forward to reading more of those books by the same author, um, Emily St. John Mandel. Yep. Uh, 
She's got, I know that she's got four words to her name and I always want to leave something out. And I never remember, it's usually the John. I know there's an Emily, a Saint and a Mandel in there and it's the John that I always want to leave out. So, and I have just started the book called The Red Widow Murders. Now what's interesting about this is it's an old, old murder mystery. I'm trying to remember when it was originally written. This is a re-release, so it's only showing that it's been recently released. But there have some old classics, and this has happened both in the UK and in America, where they take really old, obscure, maybe very, very, they were popular at the time, but nobody really remembers them now, mysteries, and are re-releasing them. And I got to sit in on a workshop talking about how um, the Library of Congress has kind of gone through a lot of old mysteries and novels and a lot I think almost all of them were murder mysteries at least that's the theme that they were working on they could very well do other genres and they kind of go through and they were as I say they were popular at the time but today nobody has heard of them and they're choosing some really good ones to re-release and so I like reading that because I I do like older fiction and classics but also feel like it gives me kind of an insight, a firsthand seat into what writers and people thought at the time of the writing. Yeah, and I I like that kind of reminds me of the book the the monster she wrote, which was just kind of like a uh, a nonfiction book that kind of talked about like the the uh, female authors in sci-fi fantasy throughout the centuries mm-hmm. that, you know, aren't part of the mainstream literary canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I enjoyed that because it's, and they also like that same publisher also published, republished some of those works. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, it's very fascinating to find like an obscure novel from right. like, right. you know, centuries ago and just kind of be like, okay, well, um, you know, the, this is not part of like the, the, the stages of literature that were, we've been taught. Right. Um, so it's fun, it's fun to kind of like take a deeper dive into that and try to get like a fuller picture of like what was, you know, uh, seen as like a successful novel right. for back then, but not like to the point where it's, it was like a watershed moment. Right. For right. literature. Exactly. Everybody's heard of Mark Twain. There were other famous writers at the time that yeah. we're probably not aware of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, thank you for joining me today, Aaron. I always enjoy bouncing books back and forth with you. That's always a pleasure. Thanks for bringing me back. All right. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a good one. See you next month. TBR is a series of the EVPL Footnotes podcast. Please like, follow, and subscribe for more great episodes. For comments or questions, our email address is podcast at evpl.org.